This is an installation of the Ferris Center Events podcast series brought to you by the Ferris Center for Eastern Mediterranean Studies at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Okay, shall we start? Okay, uh, thank you all for coming. Uh, On behalf of uh, the Ferris Center, uh, I'm going to be introducing the movie Nasser's Republic, The Making of Modern Egypt. And I know that many uh, here are also in the Arabs and their neighbors class. And uh, Nasser's figure looms very large uh, in Arab politics in general. And in the next uh, three sessions, uh, we're going to be talking quite a bit about Nasser. So we're very thankful for uh, Director Michal Goldman to be here. She's going to say a few words about the movie at the beginning, and then afterwards uh, she'll uh, take some questions. So let me very brief in introducing uh, Michal, because she's a very talented uh, filmmaker. She's made a number of documentaries that have won multiple awards, and rather than listing all the awards she got, I'll try to leave some time for her to talk about Uh, about the movie you're going to see tonight. Uh, But let me just uh, mention that she produces, writes, and edits her films. And those films include A Jumpin' Night in the Garden of Eden, which is the first film to document the revival of klezmer music. Uh, There's Uncle Thum, another very important uh, Egyptian uh, figure. And the title of the movie is Uncle Thum, A Voice Like Egypt which is about the diva of Arabs, uh, Arabic song in her country. Uh, there's also Epiphany in Progress, about the first year in an inner city Episcopal uh, school. And finally, At Home in Utopia, which tells the story of a cooperative apartment complex at the end of Bronx Park, built by immigrant co- communist factory workers in the 1920s. So lots of very important and uh, very uh, interesting documentaries. So uh, rather than uh, spending too much time, again, on listing all the awards, uh, I will let Michal uh, say a few things about her, about her film. So again, the title is Nasser's Republic. Thank you. Okay, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. So I, I'm really not going to say much before because it will just be, you know, I want to get to the movie as quickly as possible for you to watch and I'll be very interested to talk with you afterwards. I'm impressed that you're going to have three sessions about Nasser. He deserves it and I think this will be a good introduction for you. And um, I think the only thing I might tell you is that I began, uh, the film took me about six years to make. And I went first to Egypt to begin sort of research for it and, and did my very first filming in about November of 2011. So the revolution, the uprising was still very present. It was a period when people were willing to speak very openly about what they were thinking and feeling about their own history and and in a way the history for them became the way to understand what had happened in Egypt 
And the way they framed it was a way for them to think about what direction they wanted to move in the future. So that is the context within which I began my work. Just a quick question before opening it up to, to students. Uh, the vast majority of the Egyptian population was not born when Nasser died. And in your experience, uh, being there in the middle of the Arab Spring, what would you say was uh, the overall uh, legacy or the general image of, of Nasser? Still the sense of dignity? Yeah, I think for, I think even for people who are highly critical of Nasser now, they always prefaced their criticism to me by saying when they hear his voice, they still feel something. In other words, this is a person that they may, they may think he was terrible for the country, but they feel his enormity and dignity is a huge part of it. That they, they f and, and I found that people who came from other countries, and, but who were in Egypt and maybe had lived there for many years, Lebanese, others, they also regarded, they didn't experience the oppression of Nasser. They didn't experience the secret police or the economic hardships that came about in the 60s. But they, they experienced that assertion of, of dignity. And that meant a huge amount. And it still does to people. And I, I found there are many, many people still, especially if you go out into the countryside or when I went to the Aswan Dam and spoke to those workers, factory workers, they um, regard Nasser as basically they're aware that he changed the playing field. I mean, it, it was really a revolution. The sense that there's one um, Gouda Abdul Halak here who talks about at the end and at the beginning, earlier, he talks about um, the great failure was a failure of democracy. Do you remember that man? Well, the other thing that Gouda told me is Gouda comes from a peasant family. The filming that we did, those, that wonder, those wonderful group of, of sort of farmers of peasants who talk about how their fathers used to watch, that's Gouda's father's village. And the reason that Gouda Abdul Halak be, became first a professor and then a minister in the government at one point is because of Nasser, because Nasser built schools and Nasser enabled people who never would have been literate to become literate. And, and Nasser also, because he tried to industrialize, there was a whole kind of class of, of um, workers who suddenly were receiving a kind of salary that allowed them to support their families in, 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 a, in dignity and educate their children. And many people spoke to me. The sort of image that people used was the image of being able to wear shoes. You know, that for the first time, um, a family with many children wore shoes. You know, they hadn't worn shoes until Nasser. So in spite of very, very intense criticism, there is this feeling also of honoring him. And 
that's there. Um, it's there sort of with anybody who knows anything or thinks about this at all. And this, and it's true among people who also damn him and think that he, you know, was the worst thing that happened to them. He was, he was huge. His, his size, his his sort of significance. Um, people feel it still. So I hope that's sort of an answer. Okay. Any questions? Yes. I'm just curious. Thank you so much for this. It was wonderful. For those that are damning him, are they judging him from what happened with successive leaders and are saying, we're not where we need to be? Are they, do you think they're just thinking about his brief tenure in office and see that, well, not brief, and see that as something completely separate? Because I think if you judge him by his successors, and in terms of Egypt not getting to where he probably would want it to be, then it would be worth damning him. I, I think, just wonder if they hold him responsible for what happened after. I think people who are um, not particularly well-read or educated do damn him because he was the first to set in place the sort of foundation of um, then Sadat and Mubarak and each of whom built on this foundation that, that Nasser laid. And Nasser isn't responsible for what they built, of course, but he did put in place a foundation where people, um, it, as with monarchs in a way, people grow old in office and it takes a revolution to get them out and make make room for the young. There's something very problematic about a system like that, you know. But um, for people who are more educated, like Khaled Fahmi, who is the one who says, um, I, we thought he was dead. It turns out he's still alive. I kind of, we had a big fight in the editing room about whether to give him the last word or not. And then I finally said, oh, it's just inevitable. You know, it, it's, what el it's such a, last statement, you know. But um, Khaled is very anti-Nasser, and his critique is really given at the end, near the end when he says, even if Nasser had wanted to, um, to, to institute democracy in the country, he couldn't, because the system that he had put in place um, had made people so passive that, and this was the great criticism that activists um, who were, and as Khaled was and others whom I met who were very engaged in what I call the uprising and they called the revolution of 2011, um, you know, out of their um, desire for a much more participatory engaged system um, and in a sense their lack of experience say with what a democracy of long standing like ours actually looks like they the main criticism of Nasser was that he 
not only did he disempower people in terms of their vote, but that people didn't know how to engage. They expected now the government to provide for them, the government to deliver. There wasn't, there wasn't a way of, um, there, there wasn't a way of being active within the, the, the politics of sort of uh, civil society, in a sense. And they, they laid that at Nasser's feet. Other people criticized Nasser, thought that he ruined the economy, that his, his social, um, his state socialism, or state capitalism, as some people referred to it, um, actually destroyed what was a very kind of promising transformation that was beginning under Farouk, where there was some industrialization beginning and a very, very um, uh, empowered bourgeoisie. Um, and, but, I actually have found only sort of very upper middle class people give that critique. They're not the people whose fathers didn't have shoes, you know. Um, so, yes, yes. Uh, as a follow-up to that question, I just want to understand, um, based on your experience in Egypt and the template that Nasser set for his successors, um, you know, dependence on the government, proclivity towards the military, do you think, based on your experiences in Egypt, that the Egyptian people would be able to, for once and for all, snap out of that that uh, mental that mindset that they have towards the military, they have towards their leaders, the template that Nasser set for his successors? Do you think they'd be able to snap out of that and you know uh, do better for themselves? I, I'm totally not able to be predictive in that in that way. I my whole sense is really only of how com complex uh, any society is, and certainly this one, how many different voices there are and different perspectives. And I don't really think it's somehow a question of snapping out of it. I mean, the, the, military, um, the military is deeply, deeply entrenched in this country. It's deep into the economy. It's deep into the way the government functions. It's not only about ordinary people, quote, snapping out, you know, it's, it's much more complicated than that. And um, when I was there in, um, in 2013, before, just in the months before um, Sisi took power and Morsi was booted out, people were starting to kill each other. You know, I was really scared. I have to admit, I was one of those people who thought, I hope the military does come in and let people be angry at the army and not slaughter each other, because that was starting to happen. You know, maybe I wasn't brave enough in that sense, but I think the, the sense of impending chaos when you, when you confront it is really scary. It's really scary. And so, yes. Yes. 
especially if you speak up. And then others will hear you as well. No. No. No, no. They were formed in, you know, it's interesting. I've been away from this film so long. I think they were formed in 1928. Yeah, 1928. The first confrontation was with, well, the first sort of um, murders, I suppose, happened under Farouk, really. And uh, the leader of the, of the Muslim Brotherhood was killed by the government under Farouk. The Muslim Brotherhood, in turn, had previously killed a government minister. So Nasser became um, interested and, in fact, probably briefly joined the Brotherhood or was at least a very close associate. During the time that he, he became interested in um, and worried about encroaching Zionism in Palestine, and the Brotherhood was actively involved in, um, you know, they were fedayeen, they were already fighting the Zionists, and he and some other um, of, the, of, of the people in his group um, helped train Brotherhood fedayeen to go and fight in Palestine. He was dealing with them in terms of weapons, in terms of what they were doing in the Suez against the British. But at a certain point, he decided they were just hopeless militarily. He didn't think that they... And, and then his vision of statehood and theirs was just not to be reconciled. But it didn't start out that way. Yes? Could you comment on the process of making the film itself and how you decided to interview the groups of people that you did? And I'm particularly interested in um, Nassim's daughter and whether or not she was concerned about the way that you would be portraying her father in the film. Um, could everybody hear the question? There, she's interested more in, a bit in my filmmaking process and how I selected the people whom I interviewed, and in particular, what hoops did I have to jump through to to uh, get an interview with Hoda, Na Abdul Nasser on camera. So when I went in 2011, I spent most of my time then um, doing what I call background interviews. So I interviewed many people um, of all different perspectives who could tell me about many different aspects of this history, which is very complex history. And I would interview them, um, usually rec record them on, on tape, not film them, and take notes. And all the while, I, w I did those interviews in order to learn and to understand how people were thinking and feeling, but also to start looking for my characters. You know, there are some people who I could tell were not going to be wonderful on camera, and other people who were. So I thought, oh, I'll go back to this person. I'll see if they will be filmed. And when I make a film like this, each person has a kind of a has a kind of role. You know, they they're there to talk about a certain aspect of regime, they're there as an opponent, or they're there as a supporter, or they're there as, you know, they're not there to do everything. They're there to provide a certain, as if they're a character in the film. Hoda, 
is the one of the all the of Nasser's children who is really the keeper of his flame. She's the one who archives all his material. She publishes it. She writes about it. She's built an amazing online archive that any of you who are interested in Nasser can just access on your computer at the uh, Biblioteca Alexandrina. It's called, I, th um, I think it's called Nasser.org, and it's a huge online archive of photographs, speeches, movies, uh, you know, newsreel footage, letters. It's, it's, an, it's amazing. Well, she did that. So I, um, it took a long time to um, approach her, and I emailed. I fa somehow I got her email address. I called. I wrote. She didn't answer. And finally, kind of when I was sort of in despair in Egypt, not long before I was going to leave uh, in 2011, um, she called me out of the blue. You know, she had my cell phone number. She just called and she acted as if we'd been talking for, you know, she was extremely friendly. And, and then began the process of, again, interviewing her off camera and her sounding me out as well. And I brought my film about Um Kulsum, which is very highly regarded in Egypt. That was sort of my calling card, you know, for people to understand that the kind of films that I make and that I'm going to be a sympathetic and not demonizing. Um, so that was a sort of the beginning of a kind of dance that we did. But she quickly agreed after that to be interviewed. And she well understood that she, she would not have control over what parts I used, what I didn't use. I had to make that clear. She wouldn't get a chance to see the film beforehand to say yay or nay. I was very clear it would involve criticism. She was clear that that was necessary to produce a film that was credible if it didn't involve any criticism. This is the way she thought of it. No one would believe it. So that's kind of the way that worked. But I can email her, you know, like I'm going to Cairo in a few weeks to show the film at the Cairo International Film Festival, and I mean, I've email. I will email her to invite her to the screening, and she may or may not respond. I mean, she. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I was just wondering if you have screened it in Egypt. Yet. Not yet. Oh, okay. I haven't screened it in Egypt yet. I'm going to, and I don't have an Arabic, fully Arabic version, mm -hmm. so the people who will come to watch will be people who speak English as well, and there are many who do, but... Then I'll ask a different question, since you have to. Okay. Um, so I, there were some references in this documentary to other stories that, um, you know, I just wonder if there were certain stories that you've left out or you like you wish you had been able to, to put in, you know, uh, one of the kind of things that were mentioned were about how um, Nasser purged Egypt of the European influence, which yeah. is like a very interesting, rich right. story. And I'm just wondering if there's anything that you, looking back, would like to have told in this. Um, in this yes, book. for me, this um, the question is 
what do I regret that I had to leave out? And basically, and for me, I, I'll say it a little bit differently, which is that um, I, this history is so complicated. I mean, in 18 years, this man lived such a huge life and had such a, he put his fingerprints everywhere. So the task for me was a task of compression. You know, how to tell something very complicated in just a few lines. So that is an example, the, the sort of exile of the Europeans. Now, most in America especially, most um, Jews, and I am one, will tell that story as the exile of the Jews. So in, in telling it the way I did, by saying it was part of an exile of Greeks, you know, of, of Europeans, I'm already sort of reframing it. Um, and I did that kind of stuff all over the place in the film. There's a lot that's left out. When you make a film like this, sometimes you have to choose one kind of incident that will stand for many others. So one story that's completely left out of this is the rivalry between Iraq and Egypt. And if I had told that story, I think some of this history would look really different. Um, and I chose not to tell it that way because while I was making this film, that didn't seem like the most important um, poll. <laughs> the sort of Syria-Egypt poll looked more important. The Egypt-Saudi poll looked so, you know, you're always making choices like that. I think in terms of what I'm sorry that I left out, I actually tried to put it in and, and you know, you do sort of trial screenings as you go along and everybody just groaned, they couldn't bear it. It was after the war, uh, between, the, between the 67 war and his death, there was a lot of kind of reconfiguring on his part in terms of um, how he positioned himself in the Arab world. He began to refocus on Egypt instead of as a sort of pan-Arab. I mean, pan-Arabism was tremendously important to him, but he just didn't feel, I think, that he could take it on. There was a recalibration of the relationship with the United States and we, we view Sadat as a kind of, there's a funny joke about Sadat, um, Egyptian joke that says that um, um, when on Sadat's first day of office, he, he gets into the limousine to take him from his residence to the office, and they come to a crossroads, and the chauffeur says to him, Yarais, you know, president, which way shall I turn? And um, Sadat says, which way did Nasser turn? And the chauffeur said, Nasser turned left. And so Sadat says, well, signal left, but turn right. So, but I think really if, if at the point at which the document, documents are available and historians can really study this, that last three period, that last three-year period, they may find 
that Nasser was himself rejiggering things, I would have been fascinated, number one, to really have a sense that I, that I knew that history, that it was available, and be sort of skillful enough as a filmmaker to tell it without making all of you just so bored you'd be on the floor at that point. You know, I think the film has a kind of momentum, you know, to finish at that point, and I couldn't resist it, so, yeah. Maybe we have time for one more question. Well, one hand is raised. Yeah. First, it was a, a wonderful movie. Thank you. Really uh, felt it emotionally, not just uh, intellectually. So oh, it was great that, all together. That makes me very happy to hear you say that. Uh, when, when I was uh, younger, I heard from uh, two Egyptian speakers that uh, while they thought that Nasser made some mistakes, uh, they, they had a story that when he died, he, his net worth was only like a few hundred dollars or something like that. Mm. And uh, they compared that with uh, Sadat and, and Mubarak, mm. where, he, where ultimately, like, uh, when Mubarak was overthrown, he had a net worth of 70 billion mm. or something obscene like that. Uh, did you hear anything like that? Yes, I heard many stories like that. Did everybody hear what he said? Many stories. That's the kind of street lore. And there were different ways of telling it. One was that when Hoda, his oldest daughter, got married, you know, the, um, I think the father, the, the father's side has, or the bride's, whose side? Somebody has, anyway, the father has to either buy an apartment or furnish the apartment. And Nasser didn't have the money to do that for his daughter. So all his friends lent him money. And the other story people would tell is that when he died, he had, you know, like 160 pounds in his bank account, and that's all. You know, but that story is told on the street, you know, the, both those stories, that he could not provide his daughter's dowry adequately, you know, for a president's daughter, and that he had no money in the bank account. And that was always the sign of his honesty for people, that he was not corrupt, even though there was corruption all around him by then. So he also, there's also a story that people tell that he was riding, you know, you noticed the car, he always rode in an open car. And this was so, even though there were many attempts on his life, he was riding in a car, people tell this story. I have no idea if it's true. And uh, people, are, people wave to him all the time. And you know he waves back in this way. And his son, who was riding with him, um, stood up and waved too. And Nasser like swatted the son, said, sit down. He said, you know, this is not a hereditary position. You know, <laughs> you don't wave. So, yeah. So thank you all. Well, yeah, thanks again. It was really terrific. And you did a great job of making it interesting to the, to, to the students. Because oh, one thing uh, you should know about Nasser's own speeches 
that they often lasted three or four hours. <laughs> and he had something of a stand-up comedian talent. You because, could see a little bit of that. Yeah, it was great. And, and also his personal courage, because you saw the scene of the attempt on his life in Alexandria. So uh, after you heard uh, those gunshots, he went on to say, uh, so he was still quite courageous in terms of uh, uh, continuing his speech. But he basically said, you're all Abdel Nasser, you're all, even if Abdel Nasser dies, etc." So he was very good, uh, very quick on his feet. And then the uh, stand-up comedian element was uh, that he had some running jokes and commentaries about people. For example, he used to call the King uh, Hussein of uh, Jordan the midget. So he would uh, constantly refer to him as the midget. And uh, the crowd knew what he was talking about. So th there was this sense of continuity in terms of his story. So again, thank you very much. That's terrific. Thank you.